This podcast is brought to you by CDKeyOffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. And welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I am very excited today to be joined once again by this guest. I will let him introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Daniel Nenny. I'm a semiconductor professional. Uh, this is my 40th year. Uh, I started my life in the fab and worked around fabulous companies and computer companies and all the way through the Fabulous Semiconductor ecosystem. You know, I've published uh, seven books now. I just published another book last month. And during the day, I help companies, emerging companies, do uh, business plans. And uh, we get funding and work on exits. And I've done five exits in the last six years. So it's a pretty busy time. During What's the night, an I, exit? I, I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't, you know, I, I don't use that, <laughs> that term ever. That's uh, when, when the company gets acquired. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're going to start a company, you know, you, the, you have to have your exit in mind, you know, if you really want to do a good job and, and you can't just start a company and say, yeah, let's see where this goes. Most companies, there's an exit plan and it could be an IPO, but in the semiconductor ecosystem, acquisitions are, you know, the most profitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like an overwhelming majority of startups, eventually the end goal is to get acquired by a much larger tech company, right? Yeah, that's the biggest payout. Um, you know, going IPO is, I've done IPO one time. It's its a very cool thing to do, but uh, it's very difficult and it depends on the market. You know, it, it's, uh, and then once you're a public company, you're under serious scrutiny. So it's not really uh, a happy thing, but acquisitions like, you know, I, I think you mentioned, um, or somebody mentioned Nuvia being acquired by Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't even really have a product and they got acquired for, you know, a billion dollars. So uh, it, it's, it's a pretty good thing. Now, You've already been on before, and we went quite extensively through your history in that episode. I would recommend anyone who wants to hear a ton about that, go listen to that one. But I mean, outside of what you already said when you introduced yourself, what overall has been your career education and career path, shall we say, right, in semiconductors? Yeah, well, uh, by trade, I'm an electrical engineer, uh, but I do have a graduate degree. Uh, I studied business law. So I, I, it's one of the things I do is wafer agreements. So mm-hmm. I have pretty good understanding. A lot of people don't understand wafer agreements. Uh, it's kind of critical to the fabulous semiconductor industry. Um, and uh, I start companies. So I've done a dozen startups. And uh, in fact, I'm involved with two right now. So that's what I do during the day. Um, during the evening, I do SemiWiki. So I founded SemiWiki 10 years ago. Uh, it's a forum for semiconductor professionals. We have 85,000 registered members and, you know, over 100,000 people read the site. You know, we do blogs and we do a lot of interactions. We have a podcast now. Um, You actually inspired me to do a podcast. So I did your podcast and I said, man, you know, I I could probably do a better job. So I started my own. Oh, (laughs) wow. Just kidding. So I started my own podcast. We do it every Sunday. I mean, every Friday it's published. It's 20 minutes. We just talk to semiconductor guys and see what's on their mind. And, um, uh, but we, we've done it on the shortage uh, a couple of different times with different people. And, you know, I guess that's what we're here to talk about today is the, the semiconductor shortage and the issues around it. 
Well, let's get right into that then. The first question I actually have regarding the current semiconductor shortages is, has any year in the past 40 years, 30, 20, I mean, in your memory, compared to the shortages we're seeing now, has it ever felt, to put it simplistically, has it ever felt this bad before? Yeah, you know, I was talking to uh, another guy, a friend of mine, and he's got 50 years experience. And he said that there have been 14 different um, shortages similar to this in the, over the last 15 years. The one I remember the most is the dot-com bubble. So I don't know mm. if you remember, this is around 2000, but, yeah. you know, all this dot-com money and computers were just flying off the shelves. And, of course, if computers are flying off the shelf, that's semiconductors. And, you know, we, we just hyper-grew uh, so fast. And then we crashed really hard. I think it was 2001. We we went negative uh, 20%, which is unusual usual because the semiconductor industry usually grows, you know, single digits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that was a huge crash. And I, I don't know when this crash will be, but it's going to happen at some point in time. We can't keep, you know, manufacturing this many semiconductors uh, uh, without some type of bubble uh, forming. So, you know, we'll see maybe next year, maybe the year after, but uh, there's going to be a glut for sure. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I look around, generally just like in the comments and just, you know, these aren't experts, but just opinions. I see some people who at least follow the, this type of news. It seems like, I don't know, half a year ago, everyone was like, hopefully things will get better next year. And things, I, I actually, they are getting better, whether people have noticed it or not for some types of products. It just doesn't feel better because it's still very hard to, you know, most people who listen to this show want gaming products. It's very hard to get any graphics card console you want. There's still rampant, you know, the prices on the market are way above what the stated MSRP is. I think there's kind of this nihilism setting in of, well, you know what, maybe we thought it would get better in 2021. It clearly hasn't yet. So now it's just never, it's never going to get better. And I feel like I see a lot of armchair experts acting like there will never be a price crash again. But when I talk to people behind the scenes, I've heard quotes like, oh, some companies are trying to buy up three or four times what they actually need. And when I start hearing that, that everyone's just buying double, triple, quadruple what they actually need, I'm like, at some point, then the train's going to stop, right? There will be a crash eventually where out of nowhere, all that safety stock you have is just way more than, it's not even safety stock anymore. It's a mountain of stuff you might not even use for a year. And there will be a flood at some point in the market, right? That will bring prices, at least from where it was the year before that, massively down. Well, price reductions really are a big part of the semiconductor industry, right? Uh, it's one of the few industries that you know we we strive to make things cheaper, and either we make it cheaper or we add more features uh, to the existing you know price or whatever. But uh, the price of semiconductors has to go down so they can be more broadly used. So that's part of our business model. So that's definitely going to happen. You know, right now, I mean, you're right. Uh, people are buying up stock, and and it's not just the end users. You know, there's people in the channel that are hoarding, and you know. TSMC said it in their last conference call that their customer inventories were abnormally high. And, you know, that's a that's a strong statement because, uh, you know, TSMC has so many customers. And, you know, when they see a, a high uh, inventory level, that tells you that people are, you know, buying two to three times as much as they mm-hmm. need. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's the chain itself that's buying these up and, you know, they're going to sell them at profits. So the prices are going up to the other parts of the chain. But, you know, what you'll find is that the longer the supply chain, the more challenging and the more difficult it is. So automotive, 
you know, mm-hmm. very long supply chains. So many people touch those chips before they actually make it into the car. And so there's a lot of profiteering going on in there. So those automotive guys, that they're going to be uh, challenged for some time. But, you know, Apple is, is not, Apple has a pretty good uh, control over their supply chain. TSMC has a real good control over their supply chain. And Taiwan, you know, specifically, you know, that they really have uh, kept COVID out of their country. And so, you know, that's a big thing because right now you, you see the supply chain issues with all sorts of products. I yes. mean, I was in- It's I not just the, semiconductors. Yeah, I was in the store the other day and they were out of toilet paper. I just walked by the shelf and it's like- <laughs> Again. It's like, yeah, I'm like, what's empty? So I had to go down that aisle to see what's empty and it's toilet paper. It's like, you know, are we really wiping our butts more than we did last year? I mean, what the hell? But, mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know, another example is- uh, so I sail, I sail San Francisco Bay mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we, we have radar on our boats and we go out and there are container ships stacked and packed yeah. outside the Golden Gate. And, you know, this was just last weekend and it's just crazy. And we normally see them coming under the gate, you know, there, there's a handful here and there, but they're just stacked out there. And, you know, what, what the talk on the dock was is that the COVID uh, protocols and procedures on the dock now are, are slowing things down. Uh-huh. And then also people are getting sick. And now the latest is going to be, we're mandating vaccines for dock workers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, anti-vaxxers aren't going to show up for work or, you know, whoever has to get a shot, you know, he's not going to show up. Or if so, their kids get sick, which that's a problem with the schools, you know, right? people going back to school, then they need to stay home to take care of their sick kid. Or they need to quarantine because they're yeah. live with somebody with, with COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, my older son is a teacher. I mean, he's telling me all sorts of stories and my younger son's a fireman and he's got even more stories. So, you know, this is a COVID thing. It, it's a black swan event. It's not the semiconductor industry. Uh, if you have a com- complicated supply chain, you're in, you're in big trouble. Because, you know, once these wafers go out of TSMC, I mean, look at TSMC's numbers. They're posting double-digit numbers every month. You mm-hmm. know, there's no shortage there. They're, they're having a good time. They're going to do 20 to 25% growth this year, which is good for them. But, you know, once they go out of the TSMC fab, how many people touch them for the automotive? you know, the automotive market. And so, you know, it, it's just, um, if we can't get toilet paper on the shelves, you know, what, what chances do we got with semiconductors, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this will lead right into a reader mail here, which supporters more slides that can submit. Brady W writes in, he says, hi, Tom and Dan on SemiWiki, you often mention the silicon shortage in air quotes, normally in the context of questioning the narrative from Intel, TSMC, Samsung, that they must build more fabs and thus need more government money. Do you still hold that the silicon shortage itself, this narrative is overblown and that your predicted silicon glut will come to fruition in 2023 or 2024? Is it really just a substrate and component shortage at this point and that new fabs are just chasing after timely incentives? Well, you know, it, it's not a wafer shortage or substrate or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it, TSMC proves that, right? You know, that they're doing good growth every month. Uh, if there was a shortage, TSMC would come up short, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're pumping out 20% more semiconductors this year than they were last year. Uh, and I think that's important to point out, too, because I especially see this, and maybe it won't surprise you, but like people who want a PlayStation or an Xbox, they're like, oh, they're just not making enough. And it's like, actually, they're making more than they've ever made. You know, right, right, and and you know, I mentioned wafer agreements. Uh, if you look at these wafer agreements, they they are 
you know, binding legal contracts between TSMC and the customer, like AMD, for example. Mm -hmm. And these things are signed, you know, two to three years before, mm -hmm. you know, they hit manufacturing. And what happens is, you know, when, when you want to do a chip through a different process, you download a PDK from that company and you sign all these agreements and then you say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to do a chip. This is how many wafers. And if you're a small company, it's not a big deal, right? But if you're a big company like AMD, you have to tell them, hey, we're going to, or Intel, we're going to, you know, need this many wafers. And mm -hmm. then TSMC goes out and builds a fab, right? And they can build a fab in a year or two or add fab capacity or move fab capacity from, from Apple to somebody else. Um, but, you know, this is all contractual and it's done over years. And so, you know, for anybody to say that AMD is not going to get as many wafers as they ordered, it's just not true. The, the issue is when they don't order enough and TSMC mm -hmm. has to go and make some more. And if they have to do that, then they might have to pull from some other market. You know, uh, TSMC pulled a lot from automotive last year because automotive quit ordering. Right. And right. then then they had to move it back to automotive. But, um, you know, anybody that says Intel is going to take all the three nanometer wafers from Apple and AMD, I mean, it's just it's just nonsense. It doesn't work that way. But, you know, there are shortages and the gaming chips have been selling like hotcakes. So, you know, AMD undershot the, the wafer count, I'm guessing, or some some sort of thing. But they're getting all the wafers they ordered. I, I guarantee it. Well, well, that's the interesting thing, too, because if you look at sales, they're selling more than they've ever sold before. I mean, yeah. and there will be people that's like, oh, it's mining. It's like no one's mining with a PlayStation 5, though. I'm not saying mining isn't affecting it, but I yeah. will say uh, the PS5 is outselling the PS4 in aligned sales. So that tells you the demand is uh, it, there's just so much demand. And and so I guess uh, this will kind of segue into this. How much of it do you believe is well, I guess that's the same thing, though, right? Like, what what caused this shortage? Is it more? Is it mining? Is it demand? Is it some materials not there? COVID? Like, how would you summarize what caused this shortage? If someone just asked you that blank question, oh, it's COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, COVID uh, it caused people to to cut orders. So last year, that the fabs were, for example, seventy percent utilization versus hundred percent. And mm -hmm. you can't you can't recover that. Right. Because the fab's idle. So you, you don't make that up. Uh, so, you know, COVID caused a lot of uncertainty for the semiconductor guys, uh, certainly the automotive guys. And, you know, uh, the, that caused, you know, some supply chain management issues. And it really exposed the weakness in some of the supply chains. And, you know, now, as I said, you know, we can't get the containers into the ports. You know, that's COVID. So that it's just COVID pure and simple and bad supply chain management you know that that's the underlying uh, effect well you know it's interesting you you talk about management of the supply chain i know that a lot of japanese automotive companies i believe toyota is one of them haven't had a problem producing more cars and that's because they plan for like a year of safety stock for their products right. so to say that oh you know they just it's there's just not enough capacity there's not this I think a lot of companies, and, and I mean, it's just a fact. You saw a lot of American car companies say, oh, we expect people to buy less. You saw a lot of the semiconductor space say, oh, you know what? People are probably going to penny pinch more. And then everyone was forced inside and had to buy computers, which, right. how much, actually, let me ask you this then. How, uh, so obviously, and I always get mad when people are like, oh, no one could have predicted this. It's like, well, I don't know. I always think you can do better. Some people actually did predict this and planned accordingly. But like, how much are the companies that didn't plan ahead, the companies that said, oh, we expect people to buy less of these, 
laptops and then they actually bought more. The people that said, we actually think people won't buy new cars this year. It turns out everyone bought a car because you can't fly this year. Like how much of this mismanagement, uh, which is a harsh way to put it, but is to bl- like, how much would you blame them for not planning accordingly? You know, not planning correctly when they saw COVID coming, right? Like how much of this is their fault for just basically assuming the opposite of what would happen? You know, I, at the beginning of the year, I was blaming people for bad management, but, um, you know, the bottom line is nobody really knows COVID and we still don't know. You know, I was actually in China when COVID broke out. I just did a, a, an exit uh, with a Chinese company and we were celebrating over there. And this was the end of January uh, a year or so ago. And, you know, um, we came back and it was hard to get back. And a buddy of mm-hmm. mine, uh, we, we had we were quarantined by the CDC and the buddy of mine and I got tested for COVID and I didn't have antibodies, but he did. And, you know, mm-hmm. I said, hey, I said, hey, Tom, you know what? What the heck? And he said, hey, I, I felt like I had a jet lag is no big deal. So, you know, and his family didn't get it. So it was it was really odd. But next year he got vaccinated. I got vaccinated. Uh, and now he has COVID again and he has a really bad. He's, mm-hmm. he's, at, he's at home on oxygen. And so how do you explain that? The guy had COVID. The guy got the Moderna vaccine. I got Pfizer. He gets it. His family doesn't get it. I mean, what what the heck? You know, who, who can predict what this disease is going to do? My niece got it at, at school, gave it to the entire family. They, you know, 12 of them total, cousins, aunts, mm. and, but, but they didn't have it bad. You no know, one did out of the 12. No, no one, no one went to the hospital. And, you know, my son-in-law got it at work. He came back. My daughter didn't get it. I mean, this is just odd. Nobody can plan for this. And, you know, my feeling now where I thought it would be done by, you know, the end of this year, my feeling now it's going to be here for quite a few years. So, um, you know, you will see supply chain issues all over the, the world in the all different industries. And the semiconductor industry is just the same. But, you know, you mentioned about uh, Intel, you know, walking around saying, you know, we got to build more fabs, got to build more fabs. You know, that's an interesting thing, because if you look at Intel's number, I mean, they're going to have a flat year this year. Mm. Right. Or Mm -hmm. down, I think, you know, maybe single digit down. And, you know, their their fabs aren't even at capacity. So, you know, how how is the CEO going around saying, oh, you got to build more fabs, you got to build more fabs. I'm sure they're going to build more fabs. TSMC's got a hundred billion dollar CapEx. Samsung is building more fabs. You know, how are we going to fill these fabs when, you know, Intel's isn't full? I mean, you know, where's the shortage at Intel? I I think the shortage is in manufacturing talent. I mean, you know, the shortage is (laughs) is is in their pants, really, because, you know, it's just ridiculous for him to say that. Uh, But, you know, uh, Global Foundries, I just went through their uh, presentations today. They had their tech day. Mm And I mean, they're spending six billion dollars on, you know, expanding fabs and new fabs. And and I I just don't see how we're going to satisfy all this fab building. And you have China. I mean, who is going to buy all this new capacity is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we're building two to three times more capacity than we need, because right now you can build capacity with impunity because there's shortages. Right. The shortage narrative is really telling everybody that we're in you know, the sky is falling. We got to build fabs in the U.S. We got to build fabs in Europe. Everybody's got to have their own fabs, you know, and uh, I th- I think everybody's going to spend the money because, you know, the narrative says so, but I think it's a false narrative. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because the perception I get right now, if I were to summarize how I feel a lot of these companies are thinking is, well, we don't know if demand's going to keep increasing every year. But what we know is that there will probably always be someone there to buy it. So we might as well double capacity because someone's going to buy it no matter what. You question if that's going to happen then, like once they build these fabs. 
DI too, because uh, these fabs can pump out huge amounts of chips. But, you know, I mean, semiconductors are a critical part of modern life, right? Um, you mm. know, it's up there in the hierarchy of needs. And there's more semiconductors everywhere. But, you know, people are saying smart houses. Yeah, I don't have a smart house. But, you know, I... I <laughs> I, I do have a smart thermostat, so I give you that. But, um, you know, I went to buy a water heater. I put in my own water heater because the plumber was going to charge me too much. And I could buy a water heater that has Wi-Fi, you know, for an extra few hundred dollars. And I just like, why does my water heater need to be on Wi-Fi? You know, <laughs> so, so I skip that. Uh, but, you know, I think it's overblown. You know, do we really need these smart houses? I, I don't think so. Um, cars. I mean, how many cars do we actually sell a year? Not not as many as smartphones, for sure. Uh, but, you know, there was a lull in cars. And, yeah, people are buying cars now because they can't travel by air. And they're mm -hmm. probably not feeling uh, as safe traveling by Uber and such. You know, they want their own sure. vehicles. So I can see that. But re realistically, you know, how many cars are we going to be able to sell, you know, over the next three years? Not bazillions. And we're going to have bazillions of chips. So I, I don't know how that's all going to work out. Yeah. Let me move into this next reader mail question. He says, Abik Gulati writes in and says, how does the industry intend to satisfy this newfound demand going forward? Does it perhaps not intend to satisfy it at all, perhaps profiting from this newfound GPU gold rush-esque thirst for as long as market forces allow for well refusing to admit it all along or will production start ramping up to eventually normalize prices despite heightened demand? So I guess it kind of, I feel like you've kind of already given your opinion on that, but let me ask this another way then. Do you believe then that as much as we keep talking about demand and th there's definitely a lot of that because of, you know, COVID caused more demand for certain types of products that people weren't buying as much before. Do you feel like if COVID were to end, the demand would just drop without the need for more capacity necessarily? I mean, obviously, eventually we'll need more capacity. There's always going to be more computers. But you're saying like if, you know, you snap your finger, COVID goes away, most of the problems would be solved just from that. Yeah, you know, I think some would. but. Um... You know, everything's gone virtual. You know, all the conferences I used to go to are gone virtual. And and so my business is up dramatically uh, for SemiWiki because of all, all the virtual stuff. Uh, but my expenses are also down because we don't have to travel anymore. Mm -hmm. And But the, the, the downside of that is we use a lot more um, Skype, uh, Zoom, Teams. I mean, we're on these calls all day long. And that just consumes a huge amount of resources. I mean, if everybody turns on their video at Zoom, I mean, it consumes 100 times more than, you know, just audio, right? But everybody's got to have the video on. Uh, but, you know, that, that just pumps up the cloud, right? So the cloud is just exploding ever since COVID. Will that go back to normal? No, because a lot of people are going to stay home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to stay home, to be honest with you. I don't like going to China, you know, uh, for two meetings and, and coming back. <laughs> And, you know, they used to say, Dan, you have to be here. You have to be here. Well, I really don't, it turns out, because I've been doing uh, even more business uh, since COVID. Uh, you know, we Zoom. And, and you know, now I, I work from uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, Zooming all day. And it, it's much more efficient and effective. And a lot of people are going to agree with that. Some people won't. Some people want to get on a plane. But um, I think we'll be in a half and half. So demand will definitely go down, but it's not going to be back to normal. Yeah. So I guess let's let's try to put a stab at it then when do you believe the shortages i i have to think of how to even phrase this because depending on how you phrase it it really is it changes the date like when do you believe things will feel like in terms of how easy it is to get what you want in the semiconductor space and maybe you can even throw cars in there as well like how maybe it felt in 2019 early 2019 you know when I think it was pretty easy to get 
graphics cards, for example, below price or something like that. And some game consoles were actually below MSRP on Amazon from time to time. When do you think it'll feel like that again? You know, I, I was hoping for, you know, the end of this year, I was hoping COVID would, would disappear, mm-hmm. uh, but clearly that's not happening. And so uh, it, I mean, it all, for me, it all depends on COVID. The thing is, is that, you know, TSMC is pumping out wafers like regular business, right? They're, they're not missing a beat. We have the wafers. Other companies are pumping out wafers too. You know, Global Foundries, they, these all, all these companies are doing record business. So the wafers are there. You have to ask yourself, why can't we get chips? We can get wafers. Where's the chips? Right. So it really is just a supply chain issue. And, and there are problems we have to solve. You know, the good news is the systems companies are the ones that are taking it in the shorts. Right. So a, a car company is a systems company, the ones with the end products. And those people usually have very good long term vision. Uh, us chip guys, you know, we just look at chips. Right. The chips done. We're done. Uh, but the system companies have to do the whole system. And so those guys are normally really good at uh, supply chain management. And you mentioned Toyota. They're very good at it. But by the way, Toyota is looking at shortages now, too, because, you know, mm-hmm. they're out, right? They, they, they lasted longer than the rest of the guys because they had better supply chain management. But I can tell you, these guys are going to fix it. They have to because they really are losing billions of dollars. So they're going to fix it right now. Fixing it is double, triple ordering, and that's going to go on for probably another year. And then, you know, hopefully in, you know, 2022, 2023, uh, you know, we'll see a little normalization where we can get these products uh, as we as, as we normally can. So you have, you know, a supply issue with a supply chain. You have demand issue because of COVID. You know, those two are going to come together, you know, but it's going to take a couple of years. Right. So I guess, you know, with with the understanding that no, no one's going to hunt you down and murder you if it's off by half a year, you would say probably late 2022, early 23, or do you think farther back than that? Well, last time I spoke on this was beginning of the year. I thought it would be, you know, mm. early 2022. Uh, but again, it's it's all got to do with COVID. I mean, if we can't unload container ships, you know, we're screwed. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no new technology that's going to help us. If, if you ever see one of these container ship ports, you know, I sail by them all the time. They look like those things out of Star Wars. In fact, George Lucas got his idea for the Star Wars contraptions from these from these docks. And, you know, one guy is in there running these cranes. And without that guy, it just doesn't work. Right. And they don't have 10 extra guys. Right. Mm-hmm. They have they have the minimum shift requirements. And, you know, I mean, that's going on all over the world. And so it's just an example. So you know, you have to get rid of COVID before you're going to get this uh, supply chain issue uh, fixed. But, you know, in, until then, people are just going to stock up and TSMC is going to make, you know, trillions of dollars and everybody's going to have, you know, 10 times more chips in their inventory than they had in the past. Uh, but, you know, at some point in time, it's going to loosen up and then those inventories are going to carry people out for a few quarters. And, you know, we're going to see a little bit of a dip down, right? Mm-hmm they're not going to carry these inventories forever, right? So as soon as they fix their their supply chain problems, these inventories are going to be depleted and you know we're going to have a pause. Yeah. So you're saying whenever it does happen though, there will be a crash. It's like I think right now I from my perspective I'm seeing availability improve already in some areas. I'm seeing prices for some products trickle lower again. Um but that it's just going to be this slightly gradual thing and then and then the floor will just fall out though. It will be a falling out of a floor not a, oh, we can get away with still charging more forever situation. Yeah, hopefully it'll be a controlled fall. You know, hopefully they'll they'll see the supply chain, uh, uh, you know, tightening up. But, you know, with COVID, I mean, I just don't think you can predict it because, 
you know, mm. we, we've, we've hit, been hit a few times with, with COVID, right. We're taking us a few big punches and there might be a few more. We, we don't know, but, uh, uh, you know, they have no choice. They have to, they have to inventory up. Carbon cry writes in, he says, Daniel, could you explain how the new substrate contracts AMD and possibly others are making to prevent the current substrate product to recur? Is it a significant departure from how business used to be done? And here's a reference uh, from DigiTimes to what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I, I don't agree with DigiTimes on this one. Um, you know, it, as I mentioned, it, it's it's wafer agreements, right? And that's how it's always been done, and that's how it's done in the future. Um, I think you know AMD needs to do a better job of forecasting, and I don't know how to do that in their business. You know, uh, they seem to do well, uh, you know, but they're in a very competitive market. So how do you predict, you know, how many chips you're actually going to sell? And again, if if you you know say you're going to sell 10 million, you're going to buy a bunch of wafers. You have to buy those wafers, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, but um, I think AMD has been doing incredibly well. Uh, I'm not necessarily an AMD fan, but I'm very impressed by their results over the last year. And right now, I was just told this morning on a call that AMD uh, lead times are being cut dramatically. Mm-hmm. And but Intel lead times are not. So I, I don't know how to process that. You know, Intel's got their own fabs. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be making chips uh, for themselves. And, you know, their lead times are growing. And, and yet here they are saying they're going to be a foundry and they're going to do this. It's like, holy cow, you know, you can't ship your existing chips. You know, what, what are you going to do with, with more foundry business? So um, very optimistic about AMD. And I think that's really a credit to their relationship with TSMC. They've done a good job with it. The big thing with AMD is, uh, you know, they, they first started with TSMC at seven nanometer and, and they did a decent job, but uh, they, they, I think they have chips at six nanometer too, but five nanometer, they did a really good job. Um, three nanometer, the node that's going to be out, you know, the next two years, uh, that's going to be pretty weird because uh, Intel and AMD are going to be on the same process for the first time ever. And not only will Intel have chips on TSMC's three, you know, three nanometer, they're going to have it on their own for whatever they call for something. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to have chips designed by Intel on Intel processes and the similar chips on TSMC processes. Then you're going to have chips from Intel. Uh, developed on TSMC and AMD developed on the same product uh, process. So it's really going to be odd. Uh, I, I just can't wait to see the benchmarks, right? You know, <laughs> Because they're not going to be able to say, hey, your process is better than mine. It's the same process, right? And they had the same access. I know for a fact they all got the PDKs at the same time, Apple, Intel, and, and AMD. And so, so it's going to be a huge battle, but it's going to be something that we've never seen before. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, and I do feel like when people say the node advantage, there's a bit of, I, I honestly see people from both sides, like kind of overplaying an advantage every now and then. Like you'll see Intel people say, oh, well, AMD's only doing well because of a node advantage. And it's like, well, if you look at Zen Plus, actually, they were using Global Foundry's 12 nanometer. I wouldn't say that's better than what Intel's 14 nanometer was. And Intel had top performance, but AMD was managing better efficiency. So I think at the very least, what I would say to that point you're bringing up is we've seen AMD compete in efficiency with as good or an inferior node to Intel already with Zen. Now, a lot of that is Intel was hoping to be on 10 nanometer by then, to be fair. But yeah, I suppose once they both go to TSMC 3 nanometer, that will be when it's the most level playing field. It's actually, I would say, ever been ever. Right. Because even in the past, like with previous even decades ago, Intel just had a massive advantage. Yeah. So this will be the first time they've ever competed on a level playing field. 
personally, I give advantage to AMD since they've been working with TSMC for a few years now, and this is going to be Intel's first node. I know Intel guys are sharp, and and they really are putting a lot of effort into it. I know some of the guys, and uh, but you know. AMD's got the experience, and Intel is used to uh, a little bit more control over design and manufacturing. So their design guys can say, hey, you know, can you change this manufacturing? Or the manufacturing guys say, hey, if you change this design, you'll get the best product, et cetera, et cetera. You can't do that with TSMC. I mean, they literally are going to be using the same process and the same PDKs. So this is going to be a design shootout, and, and we've yeah. never seen it before, and I think it's going to be cool. Um, I have no idea who's going to win. I have no uh, bet on that, uh, but it's going to really uh, humble somebody, I think. Well, it's going to be hard to bet on who wins simply because we haven't, there's t- multiple factors. There's the fact that um, we don't, you know, I've leaked information about like things like Lunar Lake and Noble Lake and stuff Intel's working on, but everything that I hear is that AMD is working on equally or at least I don't know. I want to use the word equally. AMD's working on very aggressive stuff that's going to come out in a few years as well. So we don't really know the which architecture versus which and how they'll shake out. But also, AMD's been working with TSMC for so long, and they're buying Xilinx. A large part of buying Xilinx is almost assuredly to improve their design teams uh, even further because Xilinx is a very good design team for foundries. I feel like that could be just a, ma- a major advantage in and of itself, obviously, against whatever Intel's doing, that Intel working with TSMC, AMD's got such a head start on working with TSMC, right? I mean, how much of that will give AMD an advantage, even if their architectures were, let's say, uh, possibly equal, whatever that means? Yeah, I do give them that advantage. And, you know, the Xilinx thing, what you're really talking about is the Foundry team. Uh, yes. Xilinx has one of the best Foundry teams in the industry, and I know them very well. Apple is probably the best now, but uh, throughout the years, it was Xilinx. And, you know, that's because FPGAs were first through the fabs and uh, as as kind of a pipe cleaner um, because they have really regular structures. So it was easier to, uh, you know, gauge the process. But now it's, it's SOCs are first through the fabs, so it's a little bit different. But Xilinx absolutely has a very talented silicon team. So that would be a great benefit for AMD. But I don't think we've seen that yet, right? They're not done with the acquisition. But uh, sure. that is definitely, that's definitely going to help them. And, and it's just brute force. They're going to have more wafers through TSMC and, and a lot uh, more relationships, you know, because they get to the Xilinx relationships. And TSMC really trusts Xilinx. Uh, that's a really uh, a good relationship. So it's, it's, it's definitely to AMD's advantage. But you can't count out Intel. I mean, they're just really no. smart. I, I, I always think it's ridiculous and when people are just like, oh, well, it, Intel's had a rough couple of years in the consumer space, so they're not going to succeed. It's like, I, I wouldn't, it, it would never behoove anyone to ever count Intel out, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've, the Intel invites me to their, their shows and I go to them. I, I think they're very good, but I, I really think it's kind of a clown show sometime. But if you go <laughs> underneath it, if you go underneath it, there's just some brilliant, brilliant people there. And, you know, the question is, are they going to be heard and are they going to get their, uh, you know, ideas out in a, in a quick manner? And hopefully Pat uh, is going to simplify that because they really are management chain challenged. Uh, you know, there's just too many of them. So uh, uh, I think that's going to that's going to help Intel quite a bit with Pat leading that effort. You know, on this subject, Carbon Cry writes in and he says, how would you evaluate the current state of the two big pending mergers and acquisitions, NVIDIA ARM and AMD Xilinx? You know, I think Xilinx is going to go through. I don't see any problems there. NVIDIA ARM is just such a <laughs> political hotbed, right? Um, I, I don't see that one going through. Although, you know, mm. um, 
the CEO of, of NVIDIA is another one of those guys that I would never count out. The guy yeah. is so smart. Yeah, Jensen, he's so clever. And, you know, I've met with him a few times. I mean, I tell you what, uh, I would never bet against him. So, you know, in my logical mind, I say no way. But in, in knowing Jensen, I say mm, could happen. And I also know that the ARM CEO, Simon, I know him even better. He also a brilliant guy. So, you know, I, I hope it happens. I think it would be disruptive. But yeah, that one's probably maybe a longer shot. But definitely AMD Xilinx makes sense. That's going to give them huge cloud advantage uh, against Intel. So I think that that's going to happen. Well, let me push into that. NVIDIA ARM question, because I've actually had it suggested to me, well, there's there, there's a lot of factors for why the ARM acquisition may not go through. There's the monopolistic concerns, but I've also heard these other factors, such as the UK government not liking NVIDIA moving that chip design out of their country, that that's like the only chip design they have, and they might see it as a national security issue. And then I've also heard from other people that at least within ARM, they're not very happy about being bought by NVIDIA. I've like numerous testimonies of like, they're, they're not looking forward to it, depending on which part of ARM you're talking about. You know, they weren't happy with the, uh, acquisition by, uh, you know, the, the previous acquisition. And uh, I think it was SoftBank or? Yeah, SoftBank. Um, they weren't happy with that acquisition either. You know, I was actually pretty close with ARM at that time. I wrote a book about them and uh, the former chairman of ARM uh, even wrote the forward for the book. But when, when they were uh, required and uh, we, we knew they were going to be acquired and a couple of Wall Street guys say, hey, Dan, put together a list of companies that would, would acquire ARM. And, you know, I put together a list and uh, SoftBank was not on that list, not even close. That came out of nowhere for us. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Um, they've had a really good time with it because they've been no longer under scrutiny from Wall Street. You know, they can make decisions that are right for the company and not necessarily right for, you know, the bankers. And they've kind of been operating in stealth mode and they've been getting a lot of money. So the guys at Arm I know are very happy with it now, but they weren't happy with, with it when it happened. And, you know, SoftBank said the same thing. Uh, you know, we won't change the company. We'll keep it in UK. You know, we're not going to move it to China or Japan or wherever. Um, so, and I think NVIDIA is saying the same thing, uh, you know. So, you know, Simon Seeger is the CEO of ARM. He, you know, he did the last one. He knows how to do this. Um, so I, I don't see any problems with, with the UK or those guys. The biggest problems I see is the customers. So, you know, at first I didn't know how mm. they would react, but now I know for a fact that uh, ARM's top customers are saying no way. Yeah. And so that is compelling. And so, you know, I mean, if you get Qualcomm and, and Samsung and Apple and, and the rest of those guys against this, uh, I, I just don't see how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you would say that it, you, from your opinion, it's, it's not, or should we even just say analysis? that it's probably not going to go through. But you said never count out Jensen. How does Jensen make it go through? Like, is this a question I can even really ask that makes sense to ask? Like, how do you see Jensen forcing it through? Well, I don't think he would force it through, um, but they know things we don't know, right? right. And so that's, that's what I think. I know Simon, I know Jensen, two brilliant, brilliant guys. They wouldn't be doing this if it, if it was a low probability deal. So, you know, don't be surprised if, if they pull, you know, a rabbit out of the hat or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, they have much more information than I do. But from the outside looking in and me mm -hmm. knowing the customers, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But again, I, I wouldn't bet on it. That's funny then, because like, obviously we can't, legally, we can't give a financial advice. I should probably put out that statement right here, right? This is not financial advice. This is for entertainment purposes. 
Or, or how important is this to NVIDIA? That's another very good question, I think. Like, how bad would it be if it didn't go through? Well, I think it would it would uh, bruise his ego, which is a very serious thing. Uh, so <laughs> so <laughs> if, you, if you know Jensen. But um, yeah, I don't give financial advice. I, I don't uh, do any stock market stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a, a wafer guy. But, you know, I know the players and, and I have faith that they know what they're doing and they wouldn't be doing this uh, without it. Uh, you know, I think there's a separation fee. You know, I think ARM gets, you know, billions of dollars. I don't even know. But, you know, that that's not that's not even considered because the amount of time and money they've spent on this thing is incalculable. So NVIDIA, the amount of time NVIDIA yeah. spent on this. Yeah. Well, uh, arm has spent a lot too, right? You know, okay. They're working on it, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I just think that, uh, Jensen would, would not go into this, you know, half cocked. Uh, I'm sure he knows how to do this. So, I mean, they've done acquisitions before, you know, they did a couple of really big ones. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't bet my own money on it. That's what I'm saying. How damaging would it be? Like they're showing off all these ARM roadmaps. Like how damaging would it be to their company and the work they put in if it doesn't go through? Like would it stop everything they're planning to do or would it just be, oh, now we're just going to do it this way? You know, our industry is full of shiny things and, you know, one shiny thing goes away and another shiny thing comes around. So, you know, we have pretty short memories in in those regards. There's a lot of uh, acquisitions that failed that, you know, we don't even talk about, we don't even remember. So I, I think it'll just be a, a very small footnote in, in the industry. And I don't think it's going to hurt NVIDIA at all. I think they probably have a plan B. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, the more pushback they get, the more they're like, okay, <laughs> they're not, you know, I think a lot of people, again, armchair experts forget that too, is it's just like, you know, they're, they're thinking about, you know, what happens if this doesn't go through, they're not just going to go, oh, well, I guess now we have to start planning, right? I mean, that's a good point. Um, melodic warrior writes in. he says, welcome back to the show, Daniel. Recently, I was doing some deep thinking on what has been going on with the whole supply demand issue. As I was doing so the interview with AMD CFO Devinder Kumar with Ross Seymour of Deutsche Bank came up in my feed a few days ago at the time of me writing this question. I found it curious how out of all of the major semiconductor manufacturers, AMD is the one who has been the most confident about getting supply issues resolved. I'm aware that they have been doing a ton of behind-the-scenes work to improve things like ATMP, something like 50 to 60% growth, helping TSMC and Global Foundry secure more silicon substrate supplier agreements, and so on. But my question is this, AMD's role in the industry, is it growing more than originally expected? How far is their influence expanding? You know, I, I think... They're doing quite well. And, you know, as I said, I've worked with AMD in the past. You know, AMD bought their GPU, uh, and it was a company called ATI. And I worked very closely mm-hmm. with ATI. And, you know, when when ATI bought, when AMD bought ATI, I, I thought just brilliant, you know, because they were going to put it all in one chip. And A lot of and, people thought that was a mistake, too, which is interesting. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant uh, because uh, the GPUs and such, and, and ATI was a much better company than AMD as far as getting silicon out. And so, and they they were big partners with TSMC. And so uh, I thought that was a brilliant acquisition. And I think that's really what has made AMD, you know, as strong as they are today. Um, so, you know, they've made some really good moves. Uh, you know, them being tied to Global Foundries, not a good move, but I understand it, you know, as part of the whole spinning out of AMD and and the 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 owners of, of, of global foundries owned, you know, huge amounts of AMD stock. And if you trace that back, they, they made a lot of money. So they didn't lose money on global foundries, but that relationship was forced. It was a forced marriage and it really wasn't successful. Um, but now that they have tied up with TSMC and, you know, they always did business with TSMC for different chips, but just not their main, their main products. 
but this tying up with TSMC, it, it really was done in the right way. And, you know, it, they could have done it two ways. They could have said, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to go with Samsung and TSMC. Or they could have easily said, we're going to go with Samsung because, you know, Global Foundries licensed Samsung's processes. So they were already familiar with Samsung 40 na- 14 nanometer. They could have just put it all into Samsung or they could have been you know, clever like a Qualcomm and say, well, we're going to use both fabs, right? And, you know, when you do that, you alienate TSMC, right? So mm-hmm. instead, what what AMD did is they say, hey, we're going to do what Apple did. We're going to go all in on TSMC. We're your, we're your faithful customers now. You know, let's share all of our secrets. You know, AMD shares secrets. TSMC shares secrets. Um, you know, that is a, a very intimate partnership. And had they not done that, I, I would not, uh, I don't think you would see the success you are seeing with, with AMD. So they did make some good decisions. You know, Lisa Sue made those decisions and, and I applaud her for it. But um, that's really what's made them great now. And, you know, you can say the same thing for Apple. Uh, you know, Apple relationship with TSMC. They were doing business with, with Samsung, mm-hmm. you know, prior to the iPhone 6. And, you know, they did fine, but Samsung, you know, came out with a competing product and and maybe stole their IP and maybe had to pay some billions of dollars. Uh, but, um, you know, they learned the hard way. And, and now they're with a pure play foundry rather than IDM foundry. And they are an exclusive relationship. And, you know, I mean, Exclusive relationships have a lot of benefits as long as you're successful uh, in in the partnership. And I think AMD has proven that they are uh, over the last couple of nodes. And so, you know, I, I definitely give them the advantage. And you know, some some of it, there's there's also a rumor around that AMD might be acquired. I I find no truth in that whatsoever. Um, I don't know if you heard it or not, but uh, um, you know. I, I I no, I haven't heard this yeah. question. I mean, but I'll throw it in. Right, there was a reader mail. Zane uh, Mukat writes in and says, "Hey Daniel, they're in theories that AMD is looking to be bought by another company, possibly TSMC. Do you think this would be a good idea for TSMC? And how do you think this would affect both AMD and TSMC's lineup? Are there any companies you think would be better to acquire AMD?" Also, do you think AMD getting acquired has any chance of happening at all? You know, I I don't think so. TSMC would not acquire them, I and mean, that, that's just ridiculous. Uh, but uh, I actually heard that rumor as well. It was in it was in a Chinese uh, publication, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, why would TSMC do that? I mean, there's been rumors about TSMC buying EDA companies, and you know, maybe I could I could mm-hmm. think of that. But buying a semiconductor company and competing with your customers, it's just never ever going to happen. Um, as far as who would acquire AMD. That would be a very small list. I'd have to think about it and put that together. Yeah, um, like because I mean, I've heard people say that will t- will Intel just buy AMD? I don't know that they really can anymore. AMD's grown so much in valuation. It'd be more like a merger. You know, they could merge with Qualcomm. Yeah. They could merge with you know may- maybe uh, Hawk Tan at Broadcom. You know, maybe he's planning something big. Uh, but uh, it, it would be a merger. It wouldn't be an outright acquisition, I don't think. And I don't think Intel could do it, or would they do it? Because you know they're they're mortal enemies, and that would be a monopoly for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, we were talking about AMD's, you know, uh, how well they've been executing, and they're you know doubling down on TSMC, really partnering with them. I remember about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, I was talking to you a lot, like over email, about like. All these rumors involving NVIDIA going with Samsung or TSMC. Now, it was clear at the time that they were using Samsung for at least a large portion of the Ampere lineup. But there seemed to be, and I'll admit I was one of them that was always like, ah, man, some of it's got to be made at TSMC. Although I guess you might say some of it was. A100 is technically called Ampere. It's technically made at TSMC. But their entire gaming lineup has been made at Samsung this generation, unless you count the old stuff they're still selling. Like, 
why do you believe NVIDIA did like, and I know that we probably talked about this before and it's pretty much been leaked, but I, I like to just hear your summary of why you believe NVIDIA went with Samsung for the gaming Ampere line. And if that was a good decision or what was good or bad about it. Well, you know, the history of the foundry businesses, there's always been second, third, and even fourth sourcing. And Qualcomm was the best at this. And I worked with them back then. They would do a same product on multiple uh, processes, uh, you know, multiple fabs. And what they would do is they would design at TSMC. Then they would take that design and say, okay, SMIC, UMC, Chartered, you go manufacture this and give me a good price. And, you know, that really pissed TSMC off because they did all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So um, TSMC kind of cut that out. Uh, you, they don't allow them to do that anymore. And it, it's partly the processes have changed so much, you know, the with FinFETs and partly because of NDAs and, and the wafer agreements that they sign, they're not allowed to do it. And so that, that really made Qualcomm and, and NVIDIA mad. And so they kind of left TSMC and went to Samsung. And also Samsung offers some very attractive pricing. And, mm -hmm. you know, realistically, Samsung did an excellent job at 14 nanometer. I mean, it was as good or better than TSMC's first 16. And it was, wasn't as good as Intel's 14, but it was good enough. And so they won a lot of business. You know, Samsung mm. won, won half the iPhone 6 business uh, or iPhone 6 plus business oh, using their 14 nanometer. And so that's, that's what really got uh, Qualcomm and NVIDIA really excited. The 14 nanometer just killed it. And they, they, they were 20% less, I'm told, than TSMC. Mm -hmm. Because Samsung doesn't need to make money on their logic business, right? They make all their money on memories. And they haven't made any money on their foundry business, I guarantee it. But with 7 nanometer, or 8 nanometer, I guess uh, Samsung called it, uh, they did, also did a good job. So they got a lot of 8 nanometer business. So I think the products you're talking about are probably 14 and 8 nanometer, right? So, yeah, I know that with NVIDIA's 10 series. So this is like all the way back in 2016, 2017. The majority was made at TSMC, but they're low end like GTX 1050, 1050 Ti's. That was actually made at Samsung's 14 nanometer. Now, recently in 2020, they launched the Ampere gaming lineup, you know, everything from the RTX 3050 up to the RTX 3090 has been made on Samsung's eight nanometer, which is really like a third gen of their 10 nanometer. Um, right. Like, yeah, th that's what I'm referencing, though. Like, why did they go with that? When you, because when you, at the very least, what we can say is this: maybe you just say RDNA two is a fantastic architecture from AMD, and I think it is. But if you look at die size to die size, you're seeing. I mean, the best example I can give right now is the RX sixty six hundred XT just launched from AMD. That is like a two hundred and thirty seven millimeter squared die that uses one seventy watts or less, really, more like 160 in practice, against NVIDIA's, which I believe is like 280 or higher for the 3060. So you have NVIDIA having a larger die size, and it also uses like 10, 20% more energy for less performance. There's no doubt that AMD has an advantage using TSMC 7 nanometer. That's kind of what I'm asking, you know, with Ampere is, was it worth it for that 20% price reduction, or were they kind of forced to go there because TSMC was pissed at them? Well, I think it was the other way around. TSMC wasn't pissed at them. TSMC put up rules. And, you know, one of the other rules that uh, TSMC put up uh, early on, and this really pissed off Qualcomm, was they gave Apple fav most favored nation status, right? So Apple gets the process first. They, mm -hmm. they, get, they get the most favorable pricing. You can't, they can't price wafers lower than what they, they sell to Apple. And, you know, Qualcomm used to be in that position. So that really pissed Qualcomm off. I, I don't think NVIDIA was pissed off. Uh, you know, NVIDIA uh, CEO and, and the founder of TSMC were actually very close friends. Uh, but, you know, business is business. They got a good deal, and, and I think it worked out well for them. 
you know, the problem is, is, is what happens is, you know, people go by node, you know, uh, 14 nanometer was kind of a wash. Eight Samsung and TSMC mm-hmm. both yeah. did a good job. Uh, seven, eight nanometer was kind of a wash. They both did a good job. Uh, but five nanometer TSMC killed it. And three nanometer, uh, uh, hmm. everybody's on TSMC as far as I was going to say, I'm not sure that TSMC really has competition for that anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it goes by node by node and there are no loyalties. You're going to make the decision, the best decision. But when you have yield problems or when you have density problems, which uh, Samsung has on occasion, that kind of uh, dampers thing. But I tell you what, a new node is, is a new day. You know, if, if Samsung comes out and says, hey, look at our two nanometer or, or two angstrom or whatever mm. they're going to call it. Um, I'm sure the other companies were going to jump for it because, again, it comes down to price. You know, if your GPU is 20 percent less than somebody else's GPU. That's pretty compelling. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great Windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffers.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy Windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. So I guess let me ask this then. How do you kind of see the competition between TSMC, Global Foundries, Samsung, and I guess... Intel progressing over the next, I don't, let's just say decade. Like, will anyone ever challenge TSMC for the best node again? Will Samsung and Intel stay like a node behind? And will Global Foundries ever, or when do you think they might make a play for kind of at least catching up to one node behind? Because really they're more than a node behind at this point. Well, they're stuck at uh, 12 nanometer. And, you know, uh, Global Founders, I love those guys, but you have to realize they really didn't succeed in the process development, right? You know, they came out with 28 nanometer. That was their big first node, and, and they, they they didn't succeed. Uh, and then they didn't succeed at 14 and had to license uh, Samsung. So I don't think Global Foundries is developing any new processes. I think they're just going to milk mm-hmm. what they have. And, you know, their fabs are full, and they're going to go IPO, and, you know, God bless them. But uh, they're, they're no longer a leading-edge fab. Um, there, there's really, always been rumors, you know, will they make a play for seven nanometer again? And they say they just decided not to do seven nanometer. But like, how long can that last where they're just seven? I mean, right now, what would I don't know? You might say they're two nodes behind. What happens when they're three or four or five nodes behind? And then you just have Samsung and TSMC expanding capacity. I mean, how long can they last just milking their current nodes? Yeah, probably 100 years. I don't know. You know, I mean, we're still we're still shipping <laughs> nodes that that were <laughs> 20 years old. Right. So. Right. So. Uh, but, you know, the, the question is, are they going to be able to grow? And no, mm, right. you know, that's because you're what not I'm asking to you're not getting new business. You're fighting over old business and you're fighting with SMIC. You're fighting with UMC. You know, you're fighting with a bunch of these smaller fabs that are stuck in a certain node. So, you know, it's going to be uh, like, you know, six dogs at one bowl. You know, who's going to get the most? It's still one bowl. 
you know, when you go to a new node, it's new bowls, you know, new business, new things. So, um, but you know, I, I'm hoping they'll be acquired to be honest with you, because I see mm-hmm. that that's really the only disruptive thing that can happen in the, in the foundry business. Cause you know, you have these two IDM foundries, right? You know, IDM foundries are different than pure play foundries. And then you have TSMC who has several hundred customers and these customers are, are spending huge amounts of R and D money in conjunction with TSMC. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at R and D money, you see TSMC, you know, they don't spend as much as Intel or somebody. Yeah, it's not the case. They have, you know, trillions of dollars of R&D being put into IP and their ecosystem, making them successful that um, IDM uh, fabs don't have, right? Mm-hmm. So Samsung and, and Intel don't have that. So it's just sheer force. And, and it's, it's a shame because, you know, TSMC is a, a very ethical, very um, noble company. I don't think they will take advantage, but it's not good to have only one fab you know, only one foundry. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we need three, you know, or more, and we don't have that. So we really have to work with the IDM guys and make sure their founders are successful. Uh, my suggestion is, you know, for, for Intel or Samsung to buy global foundries, because, you know, one of the things is trust, right? You know, you don't want to compete with the customers and global foundries could be a storefront. You know, they could manage the, the customer interfaces to the fabs. They have their own fabs. You know, they can take orders and, and, and do all the front end work, you know, in a very, um, you know, pure play foundry manner. Um, and they have, they have a lot of, uh, a lot of customers. They have a lot of talent. I mean, it'll take Intel or Samsung years to accomplish what they would do in an acquisition of GF. I mean, you know, it could save them five, 10 years and billions of dollars, in my opinion. Well, I believe I've heard you talk about this before, that you believe that it would be a very good move for Intel to buy Global Foundries. I'd kind of like you to expand on that. And then also, forget what's good for Intel. What would be best for the industry if Intel bought Global Foundries or if Samsung bought Global Foundries to compete with TSMC? Well, it would, it would be Intel because it would be, you know, buy USA, you know, go USA, go USA. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think it could go either way. Global Foundries has a nice ecosystem. And again, they have the customer front end experience um, and, you know, they have their own fabs. And I think they could fill up, you know, Intel's older fabs. Uh, you know, does Intel want to fill up their brand new fabs with with a foundry business? I wouldn't think so because it's much lower margin, but who knows? But, uh, you know, w- why reinvent the wheel? Just grab Global Foundries and, and you know, fill your fabs and, and become a, you know, a global uh, foundry business. Uh, I think Samsung could do the same thing. I don't think they will. I think it's more likely Intel would do it. Um, you know, Samsung is very uh, close to the chest. They want to do everything themselves. But I think either one could do it. And that would be for the greater good of the of the fabulous industry is to have two leading edge fabs. And, you know, this would get global foundries uh, leading edge processes, right? I mean, it would, mm-hmm. it would accomplish the same thing. Uh, and in my opinion, you know, for them to survive they don't need them for them to thrive. They do need the new processes. That's a good, yeah, I, that's a good way to put it is like, yeah, it's not like Global Foundries is going out of business, but they're they're not going to be growing anymore. And and, and I do think there's an interesting point you're bringing up about it being good for the industry if Intel block, blot, bought Global Foundries because most people, you know, and again, these are gaming websites. But most people in the comments are just like, oh, if Intel buys Global Foundries, that's terrible for the industry. You you do believe it would be good, which is not something I've heard a lot of people say, at least not maybe, you know, in the circles that I usually read. Well, hugely, because, you know, Global Foundries is owned by, you know, a Middle East uh, country, right? Uh, So that that puts a little bit of, of a shadow on them. 
if Intel bought them, they would be, you know, a U.S. company. They would have fabs in Malaysia. They would have fabs in Europe. Uh, they would have fabs in the U.S., more fabs in the U.S. I think it would be a great fit. But, you know, Samsung's building fabs in the U.S. as well. And mm. uh, th- this would be a, a complete pivot for Samsung to have all these different fabs in different countries. But, you know, if they're really serious about the foundry business, they're going to have to do that. Um, the question is, are they serious about the foundry business? And uh, I haven't been able to answer that in the last 10 years. Carbon Cry writes in yet again, and he says, seeing Intel use TSMC more for product categories that need the best performance, do you think Intel hard design teams have as much access and cooperation from TSMC as AMD, NVIDIA, or Xilinx would have? Given that Intel is an IDM and is seeking to be one, a direct competitor with IFS, would it be possible for Intel to always have this handicap when using TSMC nodes? You know, when, when, uh, the interesting thing is uh, Bob Swan signed that agreement, right? And Bob mm-hmm. Swan, in, in, from what I hear, uh, Bob Swan did it to, you know, to tweak the Intel manufacturing guys because he didn't have a lot of control. Because remember, Bob Swan was a, a CFO guy, outsider, and the Intel manufacturing people really, you know, are strong in that company. But, you know, Bob Swan said, hey, you guys can't get the process out. I'm going to, you know, leverage TSMC. You know, we'll see how things go. Well, that cost Bob his job, right? So Pat Gelsinger came in and said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do IDM 2.0. We're going to be frenemies with TSMC. Well, in Bob Swan's view, they were intimate partners. In Pat Gelsinger's view, they're frenemies. And I got news for you. TSMC doesn't do frenemies. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody, in this, nobody in this business does, right? Either you're a competitor or you're a partner. And now they're competitors. So I think the landscape between the uh, relationship with TSMC and Intel has changed. And I don't see it being as intimate as with Apple or AMD. Mm-hmm which is what they need to be successful. You know, one of the problems with uh, Qualcomm and NVIDIA is they jump back and forth. So TSMC is not going to share the same type of intimacy that they do with somebody that is, you know, committed to them, uh, in, you know, in, a, in the committed relationship like AMD and Apple. So, you know, I don't care what anybody says. They don't have the advantage that AMD does. Uh, and no, no, Intel will not either. I'm talking about uh, NVIDIA does not have the advantage of, with TSMC that AMD does. And I don't think Intel will either. Right, and you would say Intel is behind then NVIDIA as well, and pretty much always will be in their ability to work with TSMC. Well, you know, uh, anybody that says we're going to compete with TSMC is going to be behind, you know, NVIDIA. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's a fair point. I mean, so you, you're saying that that's the main reason Swan was pushed out, was this move, that he was pushed out by parts of the company that hated this idea? Is that what you're saying? That, that's, that's what I was told. You know, I know a lot of people there, and... Uh, Unfortunately, most of them are now leaving or have left. Uh, a couple of them have come back, though. But yeah, that, that's that's the word on the street is that you know Bob Swan pushes through, um, and uh, Intel went to uh, Pat Gelsinger for a board seat. Actually, originally, not even CEO. And mm. Pat Gelsinger said, "Hey, guess what? I'll be a CEO because this is what you should be doing." You know, IDM 2.0. And the board said, "Hey, great, done." You know, but that that. You know, that went against what uh, the strategy of Bob Swan and but, you know, Bob Swan had no choice. He did not have control over the manufacturing. Uh, Pat Gelsinger, I mean, he was manufacturing. So and he's brought in a lot of his his cronies. So he has the right mm-hmm. people in the right places. So he will get the right information. Um, so it's a different scenario. But Bob Swan really didn't have a chance. I think the outsourcing plan with TSMC was a brilliant move for him. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. But if, if Pat can't deliver on the new process technologies, I mean, he has, they have an aggressive, aggressive roadmap. Yeah. And I tell you, you know, um, 
you know, Intel came out and said, well, we're going to get the first high, you know, EUV machine from ASML. We have an advantage. Well, guess what? The second one's going to ship the week after to TSMC, right? And TSMC has been working closely with ASML. They're the first ones that got EUV out and, and they're really the only ones with it really in production at the most layers. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just uh, Pat's made some put some pretty strong uh, words on on the street and i don't know how he's going to live up to it but you know if they do succeed that's great mm-hmm. you know I, I think that would be wonderful for the in, for the industry but well I, I just have my doubts and um you know we'll, we'll see how it pans out but you know pat could be a uh, short-term ceo if, if he doesn't deliver specifically what do you have your doubts about when it comes to Intel succeeding, doubts that they'll uh, be able to bring out new competitive architectures, doubts that their fabs will be even remotely as on time as they're saying they're going to be. Like, what what specifically do you doubt about Intel succeeding? And let's just clear, you know, let's say this up front too. Like, what is Intel succeeding? Let's define that, and then what do you doubt about it happening? Yeah, I don't have any issues with their design side. I mean, I think they're excellent designers. I think they're excellent architects. You know, I'm on the process side. And, you know, I've seen just delay after delay after delay. And, uh, you know, when um, they had a CEO, BK something, uh, you know, he came out and, and made all these claims against TSMC. And, you know, TSMC is going to fail. They, they can't go where we can go, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, I took I took him to task for it because some of the things, things he said was just wrong. And so we had a big flame war. And, and you know, it turns out he, he was wrong and he got fired for it. You know, 14 nanometer was is a great process, but it was delayed and it was uh, for, for Intel. Yeah. And people DFD, forget how much that was kind of just an early warning sign of what might happen with 10 nanometer. 14 nanometer was way behind. It was way behind. But guess what? The other the, the foundries were behind that. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's the big deal? But it, it was uh, didn't yield. The defect densities were horrible. Uh, but, you know, here he's saying, oh, yeah, we're yielding, we're yielding. Well, they weren't, you know, and, and people from Intel were saying, hey, Dan, you know, BK's lying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> bust his chops. Right. And so I did. But, you know, uh, and then there's 10 nanometer, a horrible, horrible note. I mean, it's just delay, delay. And then seven nanometer is delayed and, and we'll see, they renamed it four, which is nice, but we'll see how it, they do. Um, you know, they have limited EUV and they're competing against TSMC who has, you know, two to three times uh, more EUV and, you know, we'll see how it goes. And it's their first EUV and we'll see, you know, everybody has challenges. Um, uh, Intel went from zero to, I think, 12 layers. Um, TSMC mm-hmm. went from zero to five to seven to 10 to 12 to 20. You know, I mean, they had these nice steps of learning uh, mm-hmm. and not trying Intel, to do it all once, just having yeah. consistent increases every year. Yeah. Intel takes some really big bites and sometimes they choke. That, that's the bottom line. So, you know, is, is Pat uh, going to take some big bites and choke? Yeah, we don't know. Time will tell, but it's going to be a year or two and time flies. Right. So it's, it's around the corner. Mm-hmm. And, and so you'd say succeeding is like, I think it's supposed to be Meteor Lake launches on Intel 4 in 2023. Right. Does that launch on time? Does Intel 4 yield? I don't know, right? Let's say at least as good as what early 14 nanometer did, if not better. If it doesn't, that means they failed. And is it is what you're saying, basically, at least for now? Yeah. And, and it's going to be uh, <laughs> a very big explosive fail because they mm-hmm. will have product on TSMC3, right, mm-hmm. in 2023. And I'm yeah. confident I'm confident they will deliver. You know, they're, they're sharp guys. And uh, I know a lot of 
people in the ecosystem on IP and test chips, and they're they're doing well with TSMC. I don't have that exposure on their their internal four node as much uh, because you know it's very tightly covered. But on TSMC, they're using outside uh, IP. They have to because they don't have internal IP for TSMC processes. So you know they're doing well, and you know if if the TSMC three nanometer products come out and and they're good, and the Intel four nanometer products are delayed or not good. That's that's going to be devastating. And, you know, Pat Jelsinger has said they will make the majority of their products internal at Intel. That's that's his stake in the ground. And I know the majority is 50.001%. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> right now they're doing 20% at TSMC already, you know, based on acquisitions from here and there. So for them to go up to 50, you know, 60% is, is not unheard of. So we'll see. But uh, 2023 is going to be the year uh, for Pat Jelsinger. You know, either he's going to be a hero or he's going to be a zero. Well, what I hear loosely, and it's like, you know, I haven't done some video about it because I'm not willing to double down, but what it kind of sounds like is Intel 4 is much more on track than, well, obviously than Intel 10 nanometer was, or that they're updated, like, you know, whatever they're calling it. I don't know. Is there like an Intel, like the new Intel 7, like it's doing better than 10 nanometer. It sounds like it's doing better than 10 but it's not necessarily doing much better than 14 nanometer was for when it's supposed to come out. So if it was better than like the early 14 nanometer products, is that good enough? Or do you believe in 2023 when Meteor like launches, it has to be about as good as TSMC is what, you know, it has to be as good as exactly as they said it would be at that time. Or is there some leeway there for him to not look terrible? Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I, I think the saving grace is they will have chips out and they will probably be pretty good, but they won't have volumes of chips because mm. EUV adds a lot of new steps. And Intel does not have a lot of EUV machines. And so, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to put out huge quantities of, of the four product um, like TSMC will with the three product. So, you know, I think I think there's there's room for Pat Gelsinger to save face and say, hey, here's these chips. Here's these chips. But I don't think he's going to be able to say we're shipping more uh, Intel oh, I see. chips than TSMC based chips. And that's mm. the question I want to ask because that, that's kind of the proof in the pudding. Can you hand said, yeah. Yeah. Can you hand walk, you know, some, some chips through the fab and, and, you know, okay, they're only yielding 20%, but Hey, we have chips, right? So, uh, you know, it, the question is going to be, can they do the volumes that they need to do to be competitive in the market? And that's going to be, you know, uh, pretty clear because they have TSMC three nanometer products and, you know, between the internal Intel products on TSMC and the AMD products on TSMC. I mean, you know, if Intel internal products are just a small thumbnail, it's it's going to be a problem. Well, and I'm guessing you've noticed this. I Pat, I don't know, earlier this year said in 2023, we want unquestioned leadership. And I did a video talking about what it would be required for them to accomplish that. And if I think it's likely... My thoughts in that video was I find it very unlikely they have unquestioned leadership and performance over AMD then that 2025 is the earliest. And it's funny, like a month ago, he went from saying unquestioned leadership to like, you know, the top leader in 2024. And then I think this month he just said, we want to be one of the top leaders in 2025. So in a span of like half a year, he's gone from saying no one will question us in 2023 to we'll be one of the best in 2025. So you're already kind of seeing, I feel like some hedging there uh, against previous statements. 
Yeah, he's he's stepping back. I, I, he's walking it back. You know, uh, I actually busted him on one. He said, we're the unquestioned leadership in packaging. And uh, it's just not true. <laughs> you know, <laughs> TSMC has, has got as good or better packaging than they do. And, you know, I, I, I called uh, Intel, but I said, hey, you know, you should you should mention to Pat that, you know, this this really isn't true. And he really should be careful what he says, uh, because unquestioned leadership is a pretty, pretty strong uh, statement, right? Uh, no, no matter how you how you dice it. So I think he's going to be walking things back and, and being a little more careful about you know, how he says things. Uh, but there's just no way it's going to happen in 2023. And it's not, no, no, no yeah. at least not yeah. for more than a few things. I don't 20, 2025. We'll have gate all around, you know, their two angstrom thing. And this mm-hmm. is going to be the next big uh, thing is, you know, uh, God bless uh, Samsung, you know, for the first ones out with, with gate all around with their three nanometer. I mean, it's not yielding and it's, it's, doesn't have density. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's actually behind the, the FinFET three nanometer, but you know, they're the, they're, they're brave. They're the first ones out and they've, they've done a decent job. You know, the question is, can Intel and TSMC, um, you know, be successful with gate all around. And if Intel hits it out of the park and the other two foundries stumble, they could, they could get some leadership points there, but I just don't see that happening, to be honest with you, uh, because TSMC is very cautious about how they do things. You know, they've probably been developing their their gate all around mm-hmm. for for multiple years. And remember, when when they announced that they have to ship Apple product, right? Apple level product, and uh, you know, they're not going to do it until they actually know they can do it. Uh, you know, whereas uh, Intel and Samsung, you know, IDM uh, mentality, you know, they're going to be the first, and and you know bleeding edge and and there's going to be a lot of bleeding right so we'll see but uh just wait for the gate all around that's going to be determine who the next leader really is is who can do that well so, so let me ask you this do you believe tsmc is obviously going to continue to be in the lead of you know process notes for a few years at least do you believe there's a chance intel catches up to them and do you think it's a much better chance than samsung catching up to them well, I, again, it's going to be the gate all around. I mean, they're not going to catch them on FinFETs. Uh, mm-hmm. TSMC is just too far ahead. So uh, gate all around is, what, two to three years out. Um, uh, TSMC will do three nanometer, and then they'll do an optimized three nanometer, and I don't know mm-hmm. what they'll call it. And then they're going to do the gate all around. So, you know, may, maybe three years. Uh, it, it really is going to depend who is better at gate all around, right? And, you know, who can do EUV on gate all around and who can do high volume manufacturing at, at that node. So you know, that's going to be the next kingmaker. And, and, you know, it's coming up. It's what, three years, maybe. So yeah, we, we did talk about ASML, and we went over it. And then we kept going. I do want to come double back here and ask this question. A quick jumper writes, and he says, Hey, Daniel, I love to ask about ASML. The industry is increasingly dependent on EUV machines. How is ASML going to scale up in upcoming years to meet the demand from its customers? And is it even possible? Also, will Intel really be able to outcompete TSMC with new generation of EUV machines? And then Benjamin also writes in and asks, is ASML a monopoly in bleeding edge semiconductor lithography? Which for those listening, I mean, like, what would you say, you know, tell maybe if you can say what ASML is and then before you answer these questions. Well, you know, they're an equipment company and they're definitely mm-hmm. a monopoly, right? <laughs> they're definitely a monopoly. Uh, you know, EUV uh, has been developed over years. And, you know, it was like 10 years uh, or 15 years in the running and ASML spent, you know, billions and billions of dollars. I'm sure they've made up their money now, but uh, it it was a a very challenging thing. And, you know, I I used to go to the SPIE conferences, the lithography conferences, and the ASML guy would 
get out there and say, Hey, EUV's coming, EUV's coming, you know? And after five years, we're all like, yeah, it's not going to happen, but it, it happened, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it turns out it's, 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 it's important. It's a critical part of our industry. The problem is, is the manpower required to build these things. I mean, they have to ship these, they, they air freight these things over to Taiwan in two separate planes and they have teams and teams of people that have to assemble these things. And so scaling that thing up is, is really difficult. And I don't know what their, uh, their methodology is of figuring out, you know, how they're going to scale it up or, you know, Remember, they don't have competition, so it's not like they're going to mm-hmm. lose business. Uh, but you know, right now they're not able to build uh, and install as many machines as they need. And you know, it, it, TSMC has more than half of these EV machines, and and they're in full production. I'm told that Intel, you know, only has a fraction of that amount. Uh, so uh, Samsung has the second, and then Intel's a, a third. And it's just kind of weird because Intel was a big investor in ASML. You know, ASML pushed uh, the the fabs for investment, and TSMC invested, Samsung invested, uh, Intel invested the most. You know, they were supposed to be the big partners. Yet here is TSMC has you know EUV out you know years before uh, mm. Intel. And and you know what what the guys told me is that. Um, that Intel partners different than TSMC. TSMC is very collaborative. It's give and take. Intel, it's just take. So it's a different type of, of relationship. And it's it's not uncommon for IDMs because they're very secret, right? Um, but uh, TSMC, you know, just opens up, opens up and, and shares. So I don't think uh, Intel is going to pass TSMC and EV technology. I don't care when they get their first machine. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is, when will they get it in production? Um, but, you know, it's just years that TSMC has put together this ecosystem and these partnerships. And, you know, Intel kind of is just jumping into the ring and and thinks that this stuff's going to happen overnight. And it just doesn't really work that way, in my opinion. So I don't think there's a, a very big chance of, of TSMC losing their their leadership in, in EUV. Right. And regarding anything else being asked there, I mean, it's it's just ASML making it right. It is what it is. And you don't see anyone else really competing with them and the products they're making anytime soon. Right. Like they, no one can. Well, China's trying, I guess, but okay. uh, yeah, uh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Gregory S. Acker writes in and he says, thanks Daniel for coming back for more abuse from our questions. A question has been bouncing around in my head for a while now. How can you look at specs for upcoming silicon and see, in quotes, that it should, in quotes, do, let's say, 4.3 gigahertz with an IPC of whatever, for example? Probably getting into the weeds with some engineering stuff, but as a layman, it always interests me when I see someone look at an upcoming product, sometimes years away, and be able to predict what kind of performance they can expect out of it. Well, you know, I don't know about years, but, you know, what happens is when you you go to do a product, you uh, download the PDK and the PDK has models in it for the process and the transistors and the different devices. And and what you do is you simulate with those models. And so as a designer, you first start simulating and that'll tell you mm-hmm. hopefully what the um, the performance would be in the area and stuff. And then you do something called emulation and prototyping and test chips. And so, you know, the more accurate you'll be, you know, the longer you are in the cycle, the more accurate you'll be. If you're just using the, the PDK 0.5, not even the final PDK, and you're just simulating, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a tough call. But uh, once the PDKs become production, the 1.0, uh, you know, which is two to three years before the, the manufacturing, uh, before it goes high volume manufacturing, you can get pretty accurate models. And so you, you can actually predict what uh, your product will do, assuming the PDKs are good. And that's the problem is uh, Samsung's PDKs are questionable. Uh, 
So, you know, we, we know what, what it's going to perform like. And then we do emulation and prototyping is we put the design on FPGAs and we get, you know, more speed and stuff. So, you know, it, we, we get a good, better idea. But if you look at the specs from these chips, if you look at them from when they first come out to when they finally come out, there's probably going to be a difference, right? Uh, very oh, few yeah. people, hit, very few people hit it right on. And it's usually s- slower or bigger than, than what they had hoped. But, um, you know, it's what we do for a living, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty accurate. Well, and, and am I wrong? Maybe this is a, a, a dumb way to try to summarize it. Like they, they take the PDK, they put together a design and they say, this is what we think we can do. And then like some of that R&D spending has to be like simulating parts of the design. Like, does this actually work when we build this one part of it in a controlled setting? And it's like, it does work. It doesn't work. And, they te- and then they finally get closer to actually making it. And it gets so ever close to like hypothetically what they thought they could build on this node, right? Yeah, well, you know, it takes two to three years to to design these chips, and that's why because things mm-hmm. change, right? If you're designing to to a, a mature node, it's it's not as hard. But you know, if you're designing to the leading edge node, you know, the PDK hasn't been put through his paces, right? If you're designing to 16 nanometer now, I mean, those PDKs have seen just about everything, so you're you're probably going to be really really accurate. But you know, as I said, the PDKs change, uh, and you know, hopefully for the better, but sometimes for the worse. And if you've allowed for that in your design, you know, the margin of error mm. or or stuff, which you know, if you really want your design to yield and in a in a short time, you're going to put um, you know a, a little bit of uh, guard banding in your design to make sure that if the the process ch- changes or the PDK changes, you know, it's not going to violate any of your any of your design criteria or your design uh, boundaries. So you know. Uh, we've been doing this a long time, so hopefully we're pretty good at it. Uh, I don't know which chip they're talking about, but, uh, uh, I think you just meant in general, right? Because like I deal in a lot of leaks and it's like, you know, the best example I can really give is I've only been doing this for a few years. I'd say the first decent, I shouldn't say decent, the first really good leak I did where I think I fully understand what I stood, what I was talking about was kind of like Golden Cove that's going to come out in Alder Lake. And all the way back in 2019, I was like, it's going to have 20% higher, 10 to 20% higher IPC than Tiger Lake, which was Willow Cove and this and this. And so I guess what he's probably asking is, well, we now know Intel's announcing the IPC and it's exactly what was leaked a, a couple of years ago. And so someone knew what it could hit theoretically, right? And how do you even know, I guess, is his question. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they do know, but sometimes they don't. So I've I've seen it go the other way. But uh, you know, there's so many variables involved. But you know, the other thing is, I tell you, <clears throat> semiconductor guys have pretty good egos, right? I mean, they're doing some pretty incredible things, and they're they're really smart, genius guys. And mm-hmm. and so sometimes you know they they overplay their hands. So I've seen that. But usually uh, they're very conservative because they want to keep their jobs. And it's better to set expectations a little lower and then mm-hmm. beat those expectations rather than set them out higher. And and we've all learned that you know by by experience. And so that's generally what we do. So usually they can hit those numbers. And again, you know, we we can tighten up the the guard banding, the rules, and get better. Uh, better die size, you know, at a later date. And that's pretty much what TSMC does with their processes as well. You know, they go conservative and then they will do a next node the next year and tighten things up. So, you know, the difference between five nanometer and four nanometer really is just a tightened up process. Mm-hmm. And, and they've learned, you know, how to, how to get good yield without all this guard banding. Right. And so designers do that as well. And so I, I hope they're good at hitting their numbers now, but um, I really haven't kept track. But yeah, and my understanding, for example, for those listening, is something like RX Vega from AMD. They had certain design goals, and I, they hit like most of them. But 
you know, uh, Global Foundry's 14 nanometer really was not as good, you know, as it could have been. I mean, it was competitive with TSMC relative to anything they have now, but that was my understanding is that especially at certain higher clock speeds, it just kind of lost its efficiency. And so Vega kind of fell short of where it was supposed to land, at least in the high end. And then there's other examples right now that I'm covering, like RDNA 3 coming out um, second half of next year, where my understanding is they were designing this architecture around certain parameters, and they just really weren't sure if the manufacturing for like, you know, like putting cash on top of the die and, and the, like what you're going to see with Zen 3D uh, by the beginning of next year would really be up to where it needs to be to hit their top performance goals. And now we know that they're getting it to work and they were trying to get Vcash to work since with Zen 2, right? And so that's like just another example of like, planning ahead and then kind of planning a design to work one way if they can get one thing working. But if it doesn't, making sure there's room to have a decent product without requiring this other technology or something. Sure, fail safe. Uh, you know, you have to realize that you know people put their careers online with these chips, right? If you if you screw up a chip, your career is going to be uh, sidetracked or or extinguished. So they're pretty careful. But, you know, we have all these tools and, and experience. So we usually know what chips are going to do. But, you know, the problem is the processes. And, you know, if it's a stable process, you know, you're going to do well. If it's not, you're not going to do well. You know, mm. the Global Foundry's 14 nanometer, it was a, a copy exact of, of Samsung's 14 nanometer. And so Samsung's 14 nanometer had the same problems. And mm. uh, those just bled over to poor, poor Global Foundries. QH Freddy writes in and he says, advanced packaging was the name of the game at Hot Chips this year. So I have a question about it. Well, advanced packaging is enabling more complex designs going beyond reticle limits by combining them. It appears to do little in terms of improving efficiency. What routes do you see being taken in the next decade or so to drive efficiency, if anything? And do you think that a paradigm shift like processing and near memory will play a role? On a side note, I wanted to thank you guys for getting the SemiWiki podcast on Spotify. It's made keeping up on the great interviews you guys have much easier. Well, I love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't answer his question. You know, this is a packaging question. I'm not even sure if I can even find somebody to answer. It's a really tough question. So uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to pass. Yeah, let's at least touch on that for a second, though. You would say the overwhelming majority, and I, and I had an Intel person tell me this the other day. They're like, if you can do it monolithic with decent yields, you should do it monolithic because it will always perform better with better efficiency. You go non-monolithic when that's the only way you can make something big enough, right? That, that's, would you say, would you agree with that statement? Well, I think, I think last time we talked, I told you chiplets was cheating, right? And uh, <laughs> I, I still, I still believe that, you know, um, Apple does a really good job on monolithic chips, but you know maybe they've hit the limit. I heard that the recent uh, mm -hmm. SOC, we don't know yet. I have to see the teardown, but uh, maybe the recent SOC is not uh, is underwhelming versus well, overwhelming. It's the second generation of five nanometers, so they're staying on the same node for the new one. And I honestly haven't looked at it super detailed. My memory from looking at it a little bit is that it seems like the GPU and like the neural engine have been expanded, but the CPU doesn't look much better. I, again, if I'm wrong, anyone listening, don't kill me. That, that That's my understanding from glancing at it. Yeah, it's actually not uh, the same node. They, um, it's, it's the, the current, uh, I've, I've, or the iPhone product SOC is 
what uh, TSMC is calling uh, four nanometer. So it's an early version. What what happens is Apple gets the early versions, and it's just for Apple. So it's mm-hmm. only got Apple devices on it. It's the early version, and allows TSMC to you know get get their toe in the water on this process, and then they improve it for the rest of the guys. So this really is four nanometer. But you know people will say, well, four nanometer is not shipping till next year. Well, it's Apple's version of four nanometer, just like uh, the same thing they did uh, previously with seven nanometer. Uh, you know they did seven seven plus whatever mm-hmm. but uh, apple gets it first and so that that's the test. so you'd say this is like the equivalent of like four well, it was like n7 before for apple and then n7p is what amd actually ended up using for all their products which was a more optimized seven that, right. that's what this is now is uh apple basically has four nanometer before it's like officially four nanometer for everybody yeah. and so it's not quite as ready well it's ready for apple Mm-hmm. but it's not ready for the rest of the people. So it's low power for SOC with just the Apple devices on it, which makes it easier for TSMC. But once they have this experience, then they can use that to you know create a much broader, uh, richer product for the rest of the guys. So it's not the same process. Uh, they never do the same process. It's always an improved version of mm-hmm. the previous process. And and TSMC leverages that and calls it another name and and you know markets it as four nanometer. Same thing with six nanometer and seven nanometer. You know they they did that. Uh, but that's the only way TSMC can get a new process out every year they just improve upon you know the previous one um you know three nanometer i mean if you look at it it's really not that much different than four nanometer you know it is better you know you're going to get get you know more density and stuff but it's not a huge leap and that's why tsmc is able to do this because they're taking half steps you know versus intel taking shark bites you know uh, of, of technology um so uh, but I, I i need you know i'm going to buy a new uh, iphone i have an iphone 10 uh you know I don't care about the processing speed. What I want is better connectivity and uh, a bigger battery. You know, I use mine for sailing and, and flying. I'm a pilot as well. And so we have, I have nav- navigation apps that are better than the equipment in the planes <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the boats. And, and it's in my hand, you know, so as long as I don't drop it overboard, I'm okay. But, uh, you know, I, that's what I need. And um, uh, I, I don't need something that does more whetstones than, than something else. So I think Apple knows that. And, and, you know, I think they're going to have a really nice uh, upgrade cycle. Um, but I think battery is the biggest limiting thing. I mean, people will mm-hmm. buy new phones to get better battery, right? And so, uh, but, you know, we'll see what the teardown, we'll see what it looks like. But it is it is a new process or the newer version of the 5 nanometer, which TSMC will rebrand us for. So th- that is interesting. Thanks for clarifying that. But so then to go full circle, would you, what would you, do you still believe that chiplets are cheating and it sounds like you agree, though, with what that Intel person told me, which is that you always want to go monolithic if you can, because it's going to be better, all things considered, right? Yeah. Yeah, because you have to hook these chiplets together. And and this is going to be the new turf war is, you know, uh, Intel has their own way of, of hooking up their tiles, right? They call them tiles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they told me they, they, they call them tiles. And I'm, I'm like, you know, that's kind of like for a bathroom, right? You know, <laughs> why can't you just go with chiplets? And uh, but, you know, chiplets are also kind of weird. Uh, but um, it's a different way to hook them together. And Intel has their own way. It's a secret sauce way. They don't share it. So if you want to use uh, Intel uh, connectivity, Intel has to do it for you. TSMC is a little more open about it. You know, they're sharing it with partners. And and I think AMD is going to pr- do a pretty good job of this chiplet thing. But, you know, the, the issue is, is, is if you can't yield on a big die, it's really bad. So if you can't yield on these little dies, you can just pop a new one in, right? You know, if, if, you're, if your design is four chiplets, uh, four separate chiplets. If one of those doesn't uh, yield, you can throw another one in, and you're only losing a fourth of of the area, right? So 
um, you know, if AMD is going to have yielding problems, yeah, that definitely go chiplet. But if you want the highest performance, uh, you, you need to stay monolithic. I don't know why they wouldn't. Um, it definitely saves money doing chiplets because you can use old ones. They don't even have to be on the same process, right? They can be, you know, multiple different processes, different vendors. You know, according to Intel, they're going to use uh, five nanometer TSMC and six nanometer TSMC uh, dies as tiles for their products. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, that's great. Uh, but boy, I think if you had a monolithic chip, um, and I'm old school, I think that would be a much more um, effective design. But um, I understand, you know, it, it's quicker. You can use old chiplets and put them in. You don't have to redesign. Mm. Uh, if, if, if you have a yield problem with one of them, you know, you, you don't kill the whole product. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a good fail safe. And I, I like chiplets because it's going to do it's going to enable more design starts because, you know, people are going to be able to save money on reusability. And well, that's you know, what I think Intel's big plan. Right. Pretty yeah. clearly is it seems like Meteor Lake's going to combine as far as I can tell so far, talking to people is like a core chiplet, maybe an yeah. IO one, a GPU tile, maybe sharing GPU tiles with GPUs that you just use as a GPU. So you just make one tile used for Meteor Lakes integrated graphics and for a, combine a few of them for a desktop card, like a neural engine chiplet. I think that's the idea, right? And, and especially when you look at Intel, how they have different design teams all over the world working on different things. The ability to just have one team make theirs work and then put it in with somebody else's. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd say there's a real advantage to that, though. But you, I guess sure. you're saying monolithic's not going anywhere for a lot of different designs, though. Well, especially for uh, mobile, right? Because yeah. the chiplets are going to be uh, bigger packaging. They're going to be bigger designs. So I don't see Apple doing chiplets or Qualcomm doing chiplets. But, you know, I, I see a need for them. And uh, again, if they enable design starts, yeah, I'm all for it. So... Fish writes in and says, most people don't really have a need for drastically more cores and threads than we're getting now, although the associated IPC gains are always nice. Moving up to denser nodes, what do you think is the most interesting way to use the additional die space? More cache, machine learning accelerators, GPU cores? Do you see architecture splitting off more drastically for laptop versus desktop instead of it basically, as far as I can tell, just being monolithic versions for laptop and chiplet versions for desktop? Laptop looks completely different from its desktop counterparts right now. Yeah, I really don't know. that. That's uh, chip-level stuff. But uh, Do you think, though, because it seems like Meteor, like, I've kind of heard is mobile-focused and yet uses chiplets. Do you, do you believe that there will always be... I guess, like, how do I ask this question? Do you believe moving forward, it will still be overwhelmingly monolithic for mobile, that that's not going to change over time once they get better at it or however you want to put it? Well, you know, if mobile, I'm talking about phones. Uh, if you're talking about laptops, you know, I don't think that's really mobile, right? Uh, okay. Though, I mean, you know, I, I think chiplets are going to be big for for laptops and maybe tablets. But uh, uh, if it's in your hand, it's, it, you know, the packaging is is critical. So let me ask this. Matthias Dukes writes in and says, when will we start using non-silicon materials? And I know you're not, you know, it, it, it's, it's a wild question, really. But I mean... Do you think we will anytime soon? And like, would it be in a decade? Or when do you think we'll move past silicon for at least some of like maybe an SOC? You know, I I don't have a lot of uh, interest in that because I'll be dead. So, uh, you know, (laughs) that's my answer. I, I don't think anytime soon. You don't. So you don't. So in other words, I assume you plan to live at least another 10 years. You don't think we'll move past silicon by 2030 then? No, I think I'm gonna. I think I got another nine years. I just turned sixty-one, so I give it. I give it another nine years. 
Oh, come on, man. Look at <laughs> Yeah, I know there's a pandemic. I bet you live at least another 30. Give yourself some credit here. Uh, could be. My grandfather lived 102, so I'm going to try and beat that. So uh, I read a lot of papers, and there are papers for new materials coming out. But, you know, I, I listen to TSMC, and they, they, they're not even there yet. So, you know, maybe 10 years? That would be my guess, but probably not for the next uh, five to 10 years, maybe after that. Okay. I mean, because that makes sense. I Because the second you, I, there's so many, like you'll see, oh, college made this one nanotube thing. And it's like, yeah, you made like 10 transistors on a table. <laughs> Let right. me know when you can make trillions of them on one thing. And then also when you can do that better than like a silicon that's been re- refined for 50 years straight. You know, that that's really... The challenge there, but I guess I guess you're saying optimistically it would be a decade, and you think that's optimistic. You know, the problem is, is, is you know, just doing it. Like, you know, uh, it, IBM does all these uh, nice chips, and and you know, they have five nanometer, two nanometer. I don't know what 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 their latest uh, inventions are, and and you know, you have to understand that at that IBM is a patent house, so they do a lot of patents. Mm-hmm. And but they never go into high volume production, right? So you know th- there are possibilities there. But in order to get a technology into high volume production, you have to have an ecosystem around it, which mm. means des- which means design tools. And you know uh, Intel did their own design tools, so they came out with FinFeds before everybody else. And and you know TSMC could have theoretically put out FinFeds at twenty nanometer, but they didn't have the design tools ready, right? The, you know we have a huge ecosystem that we have to drag behind us. So it's it's not going to happen that quick. I'm sure IBM is going to come out with it first and say, hey, look, we did this, but they don't, they're not making any chips, right? So, you know, it's yeah. patent play. Carbon Cry asked that, though. He says, Daniel, could you talk about the differences between stuff like IBM 2 nanometer and actual HVM-ready nodes? When IBM showcased the 2 nanometer wafer, a lot of people got confused why IBM is so far ahead of other fabs. Not to mention IBM isn't a foundry anymore. Yeah, yeah, we did a couple write-ups on SemiWiki. Uh, the one write-up, 50,000 people read it. It was crazy. So that really was a hot button. Um, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is, is there a research and, f- research and development facility? And, you know, think about what happened to Global Foundries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they bought IBM and they got IBM technology. And IBM was the first one out with 7 nanometer, by the way. Uh, they had their 7 nanometer announcement in, in joint with uh, the university up there, uh, Poly something, Sunny Poly or whatever. Uh, and, you know, what happened to Global Foundries? seven nanometer version, uh, you know, that was supposed to go into high volume manufacturing. Well, they, they forgot that IBM doesn't do high volume manufacturing. So their technology does not lend itself to do that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just not worked out well. And, but, you know, IBM has all these patents and, and people license them. I think Intel license, cross license patents, and that that's what they do. But, um, you know, they don't do high volume manufacturing with semiconductors anymore. You know, they have some legacy stuff. But, uh, you know, y- you can't do this in the foundry business unless you have an ecosystem around it. And that takes years to build. So, mm-hmm. you know, ho- hopefully we're working on stuff, you know, but uh, I've seen nothing in the, in the papers that that are even close to being usable. But, you know. The ecosystem is going to determine when it's put into high volume manufacturing. So you're going to have to wait. Yeah, I remember when I saw that IBM two nanometer thing, and I honestly didn't even pay attention to it because I was like, (laughs) whatever this is, this is not going to be in products, guys. So goodbye. I'm not even going to read this. That's honestly what I, I mean, like, because let's just, the first question I just asked myself is, do I think IBM is about to start producing two nanometer chips 
out of nowhere for products before TSMC. Yeah. I do not think that's likely to happen. Well, you know, Google IBM seven nanometer and then Google IBM five nanometer because they did mm-hmm. they do they do it every 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 couple of years, right? And then <laughs> and, everyone forgets. Know, and they, they get accolades and they get patents and and I guess they get funding behind it. But uh, yeah, I mean, if Global Foundries who bought IBM technology, if they couldn't get into production, you know, I, I don't think it's gonna gonna get there anytime soon. Falco Malev writes in and he says, hi, Daniel Nenny. Let's say that I want to make a fab in my garage based on EBL, (laughs) electron beam lithography. And let's say that I can make an electron beam five nanometer in diameter and with 1400 watt of power. Is it possible to make my own silicon? And if yes, then how low can I go in terms of nanometers, not quality? And what other machinery will I need, like spin coders, magnetrons, sputtering machines, et cetera? I can produce my own machinery and equipment. So this is not a hypothetical question, in my opinion. I'm actually asking. You, You have an interesting audience. Yes. <laughs> so is they, this, is they, this... They're, they're, you know, it's people who play... Nintendo and its people who want to make their own fabs. <laughs> so is this like Sheldon Cooper in the Big Bang Theory? He wanted to make a nuclear reactor in his garage, but he just, I mean, just it sounds about as cake. hard. He just couldn't get that cake plutonium. That's all he needed. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea what to say. I mean, geez, you know, I used to work in, I used to work in fabs and, you know, they're, they're just so big and they're so noisy and they take so much power. I mean, how's this guy going to power any machine, you know, much less multiple machines? Uh, so I have no idea. But, you know, I do know a guy that that builds fabs. I mean, he does greenfield fabs and I'll, I'll ask him next time I see him for sure. <laughs> what would actually be required? Yeah, it'll be funny if you emailed me that and then I gave it to him. I'm like, and here's the list. It's just like a thousand items. And like, <laughs> it's like, so you said it wasn't theoretical. Here is actually what you need now. Including a nuclear reactor to power it. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe you can try to make in your garage as well. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I've got two questions left. They're both about automotive, and I think it might bring us full circle here. So mm-hmm. Brandon Five writes in and he says, as an electronic engineering and automotive style electronics, do you have any idea when shortages in automotive will let up? Seems like multiple manufacturers are having supply chain issues with not only silicon, but mold compound, lead frames, and just back-end packaging throughput. Do you think the unprecedented demand is hoard- and hoarding is, and is price gouging real? It's been suggested to me from multiple manufacturers that it's really just a lot of hoarding going around right now. Well, that's for sure. You know, as I said, there's many, many steps in the uh, food in the supply chain there. And, you know, there's greedy people among the way. And, you know, what happens is, you know, a guy in the supply chain buys up the inventory, you know, and then, then he marks it up and tries to pass it along. So uh, there's huge amounts of hoarding. You know, it's just like other things that we're doing. But I tell you, the, the transportation issues, uh, I think, are the, the biggest uh, uh, problems we have now is getting our products from one station to another. And, uh, you know, the more stations you have, the more, big, more of a problem it'll be, but you know, it's gonna, it's gonna fix itself at some point in time. Uh, you know, I had hoped that, you know, COVID would, would go away and, and we would have, you know, more normal, uh, supply chain, but, uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So, um, I think, I think it's gonna, it's gonna last for, for, you know, a few more years. Mm-hmm. It's at least, oh, it's getting back to normal, but it won't truly be back to normal. For at least a few years is what you're saying. Well, you know, our hospitals are full over here in yeah. California. And, you know, we have a pretty high vaccination rate. Here and, too in Nashville as well. Maybe lower vaccination rate as it turns out for us. But yeah. Well, apparently it doesn't seem to matter <laughs> because <laughs> vaccinated people are getting it too. Sure. So, uh, 
uh, yeah, you know, un- unless we get people back to work and unless we get, you know, some of these COVID protocols uh, settled, uh, allowing people to be productive again, you know, I, I just don't see it happening uh, anytime soon. And it's unfortunate. But, um, you know, the good news is, is, is some of the companies don't have that issue with, with a, you know, huge, uh, over bloated supply chain. And I can assure you these automotive guys are going to streamline this thing. And, you know, uh, Tesla's already doing it. In fact, Tesla might be having less problems. Uh, one for, they don't do as big a volume, but two is they're doing their own chips. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to, and this is going to teach people, and this is going to be a boom to, you know, companies like TSMC is they're going to teach people that you have to control, you know, your Silicon destiny. And so, you know, hopefully lesson learned, but, uh, the automotive guys are going to have it at the worst. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up Tesla because that's the final question as well. And it's from an ano- a person who wanted to remain anonymous, but saw you coming on, wanted to ask this. He says, with the emergence of the electric automobile, do you think component vendors will be able to scale to meet the demand as the silicon manufacturers catch up? I am curious if you see the shortages moving down the stack from substrates and silicon to other components. Oh, I definitely do. You know, um, uh, God love Tesla. You know, uh, he's another guy. You know that I wouldn't bet against uh, Elon Musk. And yeah, but but I, a I lot of people have. You know, yeah, it they just have. Didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I never met the man, but you know, I read about him and and I I do admire him. Uh, he's kind of a quirky guy, but uh, and and I don't like Teslas at all. You know, why is it we have to build incredibly fast cars? You know, I mean, and and you know, I'm nowhere to talk because I, I have Zoom a, is fun, man. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah well, so I. I I own a Porsche uh, Carrera Cavalier, and and you know it used to be the fastest production car. And uh, boy, the, these damn uh, just this little Tesla. It's like a they have this compact version, you know, this little uh, bubble version of a Tesla. I mean, you know, the guy pulls up next to me and just zooms away so fast. I mean, it, it really pissed me off. But you know, <laughs> but my car will go 200 miles an hour, and his won't. So, but he well, see, but that's what it. I would say is, you know, I think you're asking the wrong question. Why do you need to go fast? Why do you need to go fast? Why do you- but you can accelerate faster. You're never going to go 200. <laughs> I hope if you want to not get yourself killed, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those those tickets for 160 miles an hour are pretty expensive. So, but you know, look look at what he's done. I mean, he's just done some amazing things, and and he thinks outside of the box. You know, a lot of the semiconductor guys get stuck in with blinders on. Of yeah, this is you know, they ask us why we do this, and we say, well, this is just because we do it that way. And Intel is the worst at that. You know, it's always uh, so what Intel way. But uh, guys like Elon Musk and and you know Steve Jobs and and Jensen, um, they, they look outside the box. So I think they're doing a credit to the industry. I mean, they've disrupted the automotive industry and they're disrupting the uh, the um, semiconductor industry. You know, I first saw Tesla. They started reading SemiWiki. I, I looked at the domain. I said, Hey, what's Tesla reading this my site for? You know, they make cars. But then I looked in, on LinkedIn and and uh, they had teams of semiconductor guys, guys I knew, and a lot of guys from AMD. And, uh, I'm like, oh my God, they're, they're doing their own chips, you know? And I said, it's, it's the Apple effect, right? Apple's the first one to do their own chip. Then everybody does their own chips. So, um, I think that's the lesson learned here. And I think the automotive guys are really going to take it seriously and, and start, uh, taking responsibility for their own stuff. Well, yeah. And it's funny. You said, okay, build up your, your, you know, your own ecosystem to supply this thing you want to make Tesla did, and it isn't a normal car. So they really had to build from the ground up this yeah, entire no supply choice. chain. Yeah, it's incredible no they ever succeeded. No one really thought they would, whether you like them or not. It's absolutely crazy that they managed to do it. I mean, there's been so many failed car companies that were newer, let alone one that does it in an entirely different way. 
Yeah, I put an order for the first Tesla car, the little uh, sports car they had. And uh, I had to put a deposit down. And then then they they bumped me in line for, I guess, the celebrities jumped on and, and they bumped me down. Yeah. And, and so I canceled my order. But they sent me a hat. So I still have the hat. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to support them. I thought it was a great idea. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just why do they have to be so damn fast? You know, I guess phones used to be that way. Uh, you know, who has the faster phone? I don't think we really care anymore. You know, I don't. We're, we're all about the ecosystem, you know, and for me, it's it's connectivity, right? I want to be connected well, no matter where I am, you know, in the ocean or or in a plane. Uh, and, you know, I want battery life. You know, that's my priorities now, whereas I uh, used to be as a younger guy. I'm like, you know, give me the fastest computer. I remember I bought uh, uh, an AMD fueled computer. It was 40 megahertz because the oh, IBM yeah. only went 36. So I paid an extra hundred bucks just to go. Well, it's like five better. gigahertz, right? People yeah. still buy like an inefficient Intel processor a couple of years ago because they can say it hits five gigahertz. Right. But did I really need that extra four megahertz? Did I notice? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Well, All I right. mean, I think that's a good note to end on there. We actually got through quite a lot of the reader mails far more than I thought we would. I guess before we close out, I would say... Thanks for coming on again. And why don't you plug as many things as you want to, you know, where can people find you and what things do you want to plug for people to find? Well, you can find me on semiwiki.com and you know, we have blogs, we have, uh, wikis, we have webinars, and now we have podcasts. So you can get our podcast on semiwiki. It's called semiconductor insiders. You want to look at for it and on, uh, the other services. Um, and other than that, you can find me sailing around, uh, the West coast. So, uh, you know, look me up. Yeah, you'll be staring at a bunch of uh, shipping containers, apparently, the entire time. <laughs> well, I have to dodge them. And let me tell you something. You don't realize how big those things are until you pull up. And I have a big boat until you pull up in a sailboat next to these things. I mean, they're huge and they go really fast. And so, you know, like I'm the squirrel. They're the semi, right? Yeah. It's one of those things. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's something that I've heard that, too, about boats is they see these big boats and they're like, you can avoid them. It's like, no, you better start correcting your trajectory now because it's actually i know it's big but it's moving a lot faster than you think it is based on yeah. its size and the distance so we, right? we have we have electronics we have an ais system that tells us you know who it is and how far they are and and you don't want to get it within a mile of these guys because they mm. go really fast and it's very it's very deceptive because you see them and, and they say oh yeah they're really far away but boy and and they don't turn or stop right so no 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 they're not they're not no. moving for you no no they don't care all right. Well, thank you again for coming on. I think this will be another kind of great episode. I'm really glad we got to really talk in depth about because there's just been so much anger about what's causing the shortages and like what can be done. And I think at the end of the day, that's it sounds like it was just a bit of mismanagement. And I mean, at the same time, mismanagement is one way to put it. Another thing is unpredictable circumstances. And in fact, they're making more than ever. But the good news is a lot of people doubt a crash, and you at least believe. There will be a crash that drives prices lower, that people aren't just going to be able to charge double the price and hoard everything forever. The, it, it, the, the parade will stop at some point. It has to. It's just the way it is. And if you look at the CapEx, they're just building so many fabs. And it, it's an ego thing. You know, I'm going to spend $10 million. I'm going to spend $20 billion. I'm going to spend $200 billion. I mean, it's crazy. You know, even Intel's upping their numbers. So it, there's only one outcome. And hopefully it'll be a soft crash, but uh, it's coming and, it, and, it's, and it's for the greater good, right? So we want cheaper electronics. We're going to get them. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that I, I always kind of thought that, but the thing that really convinced me was hearing recently in the past couple of weeks, everyone tell me, oh, everyone's buying four times what they need. The second you hear that, it's like, oh, it's an arms race. It, it'll crash. Like, yeah. then it's going to. 
Um, all right. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Mellon, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lennon, Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Akwari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Pear, Zachary Martin, Terrence Aaron, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337, Antics, The Ninth Dude, Jesse Jaskuiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Evil King Kilo, Fatboy Disru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wantick, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Grow, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Gareffa, Joaquin. Kim Hagen, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S. Blake, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Longest, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powers, Drew, Elenia, Nanyan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Ian Clifford, Dark Rain 2049, Layton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Brett Summers, Judd Y, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicoella. Zlicky, Matt Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Ulan, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Dehoo Sarah Light, Mitchell Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castillo, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie, Kalik Souza, 
Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, Mai Sharona, Y. Trui, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chin, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpeet Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Maz, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Zijit, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wissink, Sam Vence, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Jeremy Show, and James Anderson. And thank you to Sahara for the music. 